Welcome back to another amazing episode on Veterinary Vibes, the podcast where we vibe so you can thrive. I'm your host, Garth Roblard, and today we're talking with Dr. Peter Weinstein. Dr. Weinstein is a seasoned veterinarian, devoted family man, and a passionate advocate for the betterment of veterinary medicine. From his early days as a kennel attendant to owning and operating his own hospital, Dr. Weinstein has experienced every facet of the veterinary world. His journey isn't just about treating animals, it's about leading change and innovation in the field. Dr. Weinstein's impact extends beyond boardrooms and clinics. He's also a published author, renowned for his work, E-Myth Veterinarians, why most veterinary practices don't work and what to do about it. And now he's passing on his wisdom to the next generation as a professor of business and finance at Western University of Health Sciences. Driven by a desire to see the profession thrive, Dr. Weinstein is not your typical veterinarian. He's a self-proclaimed free-thinking change agent, a disruptor with a purpose. And with a daughter who's following his footsteps, he's more committed than ever to shaping a brighter future for veterinary medicine. Get ready for this episode, because here we go. So let's uh, let's start at the beginning here. Um, I'm curious to know a little bit more about your story. So from what I've found on the internet, um, you've got your hand in everybody's cookie jar almost, it seems. And and um, you talk about networking. And, and if I say your name to um, a general practitioner that's here in Orange County and they, they know you, you know, they they know a lot about you. So it's it's really nice to hear the positive, wonderful things that they say about you. And uh, I'm curious to know, how did it all start? Why veterinary medicine? I grew up with cats and I grew up with a mom who was a biology teacher, a grandfather who was a classic general practitioner back in the 60s where he lived upstairs and his medical offices were downstairs. So I had that background. My dad was a CPA, MBA, so I had the business side of things as well. I decided I didn't want to become a doctor in terms of the two-legged patients. Um, And so probably between growing up with cats, going to the veterinarian with my parents when we brought the cats in and reading All Creatures Great and Small, which came out in the early to mid-70s, I said, okay, I want to be a veterinarian. So probably at 11, 10, I decided that I would go to veterinary school. I did my undergraduate at Cornell, thinking I would end up at the veterinary school at Cornell. Mm, Didn't work. I am uh, a perfect example of uh, having too much fun as an undergraduate impacting your GPA. So... I got a number of rejections at Cornell, moved to Illinois to establish residency there, also to do a master's in reproductive physiology, working with cows. And this is a city kid growing up just outside New York City. But yeah, I spent a lot of time with my arm inside a cow uh, in my graduate work, and then eventually got into the veterinary school at the University of Illinois. kind of entered vet school thinking I'd become an equine orthopedic surgeon and left with an interest in small animal internal medicine. So I, I kind of have the, the classic path of, of somebody who grew up knowing what he wanted to do and really didn't have a, a uh, plan B, which I should have, but my plan B probably would have been research, but ended up just going to veterinary school and two weeks after graduation moved to Southern California and then the rest is a more published history. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, the the different paths that we all go on and, and I resonate with a lot of, you know, what you just said, because 
for me, grades were a challenge. You know, I was rejected from 10 or 12 vet schools the first time I applied. And yeah, that lit a fire under my ass and it made me go, hey, you know, hunker down. You got one year left. You need to focus and, and do something about it. And then COVID hit. And um, that was a whole nother can of worms to deal with. Um, but it's interesting to see your perseverance and and know that uh, it didn't bring you down. It just encouraged you more and you knew the path that you wanted to go on. So that's that's commendable and, and really cool to see. Yeah. I mean, it, I think the the resilience that the veterinary profession has is reflected in the vast majority of veterinary students and, and those who have been in the profession for years. It, it's a commitment. It's a passion. It's an insanity. Many of us should be committed. So, um, but I, I think there's a reason we do it. And, and I think it's something that many of the students who I speak to, especially at Western and the applications that I review as I go through the process of, of helping to seat classes and having done this at a couple of different schools in, in terms of admissions committee, it, it's interesting just to see the, the personalities of veterinary students and how they may differ from uh, law students or accounting students or whatever the case may be. So I, I think there's a lot of commitment and dedication to the veterinary the veterinarians out there and it comes from that that hard work that it took to get into veterinary school oh yeah there's no doubt everyone has their own challenges that they had to go through so i really want to hit on i know you're a a huge advocate for mentorships and in an ever-changing world that's so challenging and hard to navigate alone what's what's first year dr weinstein going out there what what did you feel like i know it's it may have been a different time but I felt, well, my first job was about four miles from where we're sitting in Woodbridge. And uh, I had moved 2,000 miles to Irvine, had a job that I thought was great. I could describe the hospital in great detail, but it would probably tell people which hospital it is. But let's just say I lasted in my first job three months because it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Uh, first day I got my license, I got the keys to the hospital, the pager, I was on call, and the hospital had six exam rooms, and the mentoring was non-existent. So I had to, fl to float, to sink, to fly, to dive all by myself, and there really wasn't um, support. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what I tell people is don't make the same mistakes I did. I got a great snow job by the owner and some of the associates. Why? Because they were looking for more doctors and didn't kick the tires, didn't look in the, for the skeletons in the closet, which I found out afterwards. And so I left after three months, learned about non-competes in California, <laughs> only because they're, they were illegal then and they're illegal now. But there was one in my contract, and it was used as leverage against me until I went and met with an attorney who laughed at me and said, you know, these are illegal here. Your boss has no, doesn't have a leg to stand on. Left the job and then met with the right people who helped me learn about leadership, learn about quality practice, learn about working with the team, all sorts of different things. And it was... Yeah, and I, I'm part of my focus on mentoring and, and helping the next generation is really because many of us who've done this for a while have stories to tell. 
and and you can learn from those stories and you can learn what not to do. I I have done a talk, you know, is there life after vet school? Also known as don't make the same mistakes I did. Well, uh, I I like the way that you put that. I'd I'd like to unpack one thing that you said a little bit earlier in regards to this is kind of a hot topic right now is the non-competes. Why is that non-competes have been around so long and no one has truly challenged them, at least socially. And of course, you may have uh, experienced people challenging it before, but I I don't really have much knowledge about the non-competes. How do we protect ourselves against non-competes and really what are they? Well, non-competes are basically a clause in a contract that advises the employee that should they leave employment, they cannot set up a competitive business within a certain radius and for a certain period of time without a penalty. And so the contract essentially says for three years, for five miles, you cannot set up a veterinary hospital within a three-year or five-mile radius of where you're currently practicing. So it's a restraint of trade in many ways. In the state of California, they're illegal and they have been for employee-employer relationships. It's a different situation in a partnership or a business relationship. So in the state of California, they're illegal. They shouldn't be in the contract. But what they've done in other states is they have prevented competition because if you've done a great job of building my practice working for me and you decide to leave, in the state of California, theoretically, you could set up right next door (laughs) and there's nothing I could do about it until I make you a partner and then that would have a clause in there that would be enforceable. Mm. So a lot of the conversation that's come up recently has to do more with non-competes in the hands of corporate or national companies to also control competition. So there's non-competes, there's non-solicitations, and there's non-disparagement. Non-solicitation, if you work for me and you leave me, there is a ethical and a legal prevention from you directly soliciting or taking my client list or contacting my employees and trying to solicit them away from my practice. That's a Mm non-solicitation. I'm all about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's, if somebody wants to leave the practice on their own, that's fine. But if Mm -hmm. you're going to actively recruit them, Mm -hmm. that's a little bit more of a concern to me. Sure. Non-disparagement means you're not going to leave and say anything bad. Mm -hmm. But the non-compete to me is, is an unfair practice and it prevents competition. And you can envision why especially in the good old days when Doc Weinstein was the only doc in town and Dr. Garth wants to leave and set up a competitive practice two miles away, I might be a little bit disconcerted. Well, in in a rural community, that could be a problem in terms of, of impact on business. But my job really is to keep Dr. Garth on my team, make Dr. Garth happy, and not want to leave. If I haven't done that, maybe I made a mistake. So I I do think the FTC is looking at it on a global basis, not just veterinary specific, but I think the Federal Trade Commission may weigh in on the legality or the application of non-competes in many businesses, not just veterinary medicine, over the next year or so 
And it may be that a year from now, if we're having a conversation, we won't be talking about non-competes anyhow. Do you think that's a true possibility? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you, you talk about corporate practices and over the past decade, we've been watching all of these corporate giants and also just new corporations that are coming up absorbing all these smaller practices because they're dangling the carrot in front of them. And, and of course it's to be a realist, it's, it's appealing, you know, as, as probably, and of course this is all me speculating, but to, to be a practice owner and, um, maybe you're coming up to retirement age and you want to sell the practice. How many people are coming at you from the private sector going, I can offer you what this corporation's offering you. And, um, how do we keep businesses from going to the corporations, really. All right. So if we have a conversation in March of 2020, before the pandemic, and we have a conversation in March of 2024, they're going to look a little bit similar than if we're having a conversation in the mean, in the middle. Mm-hmm. During the pandemic, many practices were extremely successful from a revenue standpoint. And all of a sudden, national corporations, new and old, saw a golden goose. And they paid a lot of money, very high multiples of EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, to buy practices. At higher multiples than they had prior to March of 2020, and those multiples have dropped back down now to a much more competitive range, somewhere between 8 and 12 on average, when they were up pushing 20 to 24 during the pandemic. So we have seen a couple of different things as a result of the pandemic. We saw a radical rise of hospital sales in the larger million and a half doc, excuse me, million and a half revenue and higher hospitals were selling at huge multiples during the pandemic. Concurrently, there had a labor strife. Doctors were leaving. So the corporations, to be able to keep hospitals open, in in many cases, had to increase salaries, signing bonuses, moving expenses, and everything else. So those expenses went up. Well, staff salaries went up. Doctor salaries went up. Cost of goods went up profitability went down, money got expensive. And so now money's not as fluid as it was during the pandemic. And so practice sales have slowed down in some cases. Mm -hmm. And they've slowed down and made it a much more competitive marketplace for somebody who wants to buy an independent practice and keep it independent. So there's all sorts of different ways to finance practice sales. But I do think that the next phase of veterinary business will be independent practices owned by independent individuals and creating competitive entities in different business models, different ways of doing things than we've done in the past. So I think it's going to be very interesting to also see what happens with these 70 or so national companies in terms of their ability to recap, which means get additional funding from venture capital and private equity, or whether they will start to merge and consolidate some of the consolidators. And I anticipate we'll see some Pac-Man mm-hmm. response of, of the, the big big guys eating some of the small guys, but probably not 
for the return on investment that some of the small guys were anticipating. So bottom line answer to your question, you had a four-minute answer for a, <laughs> for a four-second response. Mm-hmm. There will be plenty of opportunities for you to buy independent practices in the future at a competitive price if you buy the right practice. There are some practices you don't want to buy mm-hmm. unless you want to do a fixer-upper and buy the Tom Hanks money pit. Right. Yeah, I mean, you hear those stories. I've got a few friends that that own practices and some are veterinarians and some are just entrepreneurs because they they see that. And uh, one in particular, who is my current boss, uh, she's had the practice for right around 15 years and she's been approached by all types of different people to purchase the practice. Mm -hmm. She's even said that the sales aspect, because obviously in a competitive market, you've got to adjust your prices, right? And she said that she's seen a dip in, in the return lately. Which has been quite interesting because it's in, you know, Laguna, Laguna area. It's, you know, it's a nice neighborhood. You know, people have the money, of course, to spend on, on all these things. But it's just interesting to see over time the, the fluctuations and then certain drop-offs and certain increases. It's just, it's really empowering to see that someone did that. You know, a single person really did that, of course, with a network um, and, of course, capital. That's the biggest, the biggest, easiest thing. So speaking of capital, how, how is the veterinarian that's five years into practicing, right? They're like, you know what? I've, I've saved up a little bit. I've, um, you know, learned proper medicine, let's say, or maybe still learning proper medicine, but I want to, I want to own that practice and I'm tired of working for the corporate giants. How do they go about getting the finances for that? Are banks more likely because they see the potential return in this? They know that the security of this industry or are they a little bit more concerned? First of all, my practice was in Laguna Niguel. Mm -hmm. So I know the area Mm -hmm. and the banks are still very fluid when it comes to lending if the practice has the cash flow. If you're purchasing existing practice, there has to be sufficient cash flow to retire the debt, pay a fair and equitable salary Mm -hmm. and have some growth, et cetera. So the banks have no problem financing purchases. Mm-hmm. Now, they're, they may not be willing to finance at the escalated multiples that a corporate will. So you may get into a competition. So the veterinarian for whom you work, if she had a bid on the table from a national corporation and you walked in, she might have to make a decision. And there are ways to finance it that she could end up getting the same amount, but she may not get it all up front. Mm-hmm. from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. The banks are not going to finance those practices that don't have the cash flow because that's too much of a risk, mm-hmm. number one. And they won't finance at a price point that can't cash flow the sale. So they're going to look at EBITDA as well, and they may not look at an 8 to 12 multiple. They may be on the lower side. So it all depends upon the right person with the right financial literacy with a little bit of cash in the bank indicating their ability to manage their own finances, and finally, with the right practice, Mm -hmm. which has the right cash flow and profitability. You bring those two together, you are looking at a successful marriage, from lack of a better way to put it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in California, it's I know a lot of areas are super saturated. So like you said, it you got to be really careful with where you're throwing one up. 
Yeah, but I would disagree that they're not super saturated. There are so many underserved communities and mm-hmm. that even have a lot of veterinary hospitals because you have to look at different business models. Not everybody can afford the best care, and some people have to provide some level of affordable care. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's a it's really a question of they're they're post pandemic as the number of transactions has started to to dis- decrease, mm-hmm. and that's what we're seeing, there are pet owners who want to go to see a new veterinarian. I, I don't think there's an over, a super saturation of veterinary hospitals. I think that, that mm-hmm. there's plenty of good opportunity for competition that will increase the, the service level that we provide, the value that we provide, and I still think there's plenty of business for everybody. Are you encouraging more privatization of veterinary medicine? Two thumbs up. Okay. I think the guy just got done doing a um, series of, of uh, webinars on how to start or how to purchase an existing hospital. So a new guy like you coming out of school who wants to be educated in you know everything from soup to nuts, mm-hmm. we're trying to put that education model together as well as you know support it with some mastermind groups to help answer all those questions. I think it's there's a lot of things to running a small business. It's not just putting up a shingle and saying, hey, I'm the doc. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different things that go into it. And understanding what all of those things are will ultimately lead to your practice success and then your personal success. You have to buy business, not a job. And there's a lot of veterinarians out there who own a job mm-hmm. that gives them a salary, but not a business that gives them a return. Why is that uh, kind of thought process ideology not pushed as much in veterinary school? I mean, for me, I just, I feel like I have an entrepreneurial spirit. Like I'm, I was the guy selling chips at school. I was, you know, I'm doing all types of weird, odd things because for one, it's fun. And for two, there's the possibility of a nice ROI at the end of the day. And so why is, is business in veterinary school so neglected? Well, I don't think business is neglected per se. It's just not a focus. Mm -hmm. It's because the business of veterinary medicine has probably been a focus for 30 years. Before, veterinary medicine was a business, but now it's become a business. Mm -hmm. Um, VCA in 1993 had 18 hospitals. Banfield was VetSmart and just starting to go into the uh, PetSmart facilities. So we, in the last 30 years, have seen a dramatic change. And some of that was some of the flea control products that went from bombs and dips to topicals and other things. So we've seen the human-animal bond, that relationship grow and develop, the value of people, excuse me, pets to people, the relationship between pets and people. Mm-hmm. And so I think all of this has increased the business of veterinary medicine. And so now we have to do it as a business. You used to be able to just open a hospital and you'd make money. Mm-hmm. But now there's more competition and client expectations. If you're going to send somebody out the door with a $2,000 bill, they have higher expectations. Well, they have higher expectations from the doctor, but more importantly, they have it from the staff as well. So you have to have a business that's dependent upon people. And that takes learning how to hire and train and retain and focus with your team. So it's a lot more difficult now to run that business at a profitable point than it was in the past. And and that's some of it comes from competition. But the other thing, couple of things to think about. Number one, pet owners don't spend budgeted money on their pets. 
they spend discretionary income. Mm -hmm. So they may spend money on a vacation or they may spend money on fluffy. They may spend money at the doggy daycare more so than they'll spend money in the veterinary hospital. So we're in a competitive entity, not just in the veterinary field. So I think it's important that people recognize that even though you're getting a degree and an education in healthcare, we are a service industry, and especially on the companion animal side, we are a service industry that provides healthcare, which means we have to compete with Best Buy, the movies, American Airlines, Air Jordans, mm -hmm. when it comes down to it. So uh, we were able to get by just as a veterinarian hanging out a shingle, and now we have to get by as the client experience at Dr. Weinstein's hospital is what's going to deliver the business model to the clients. Yeah. And I, I think that's super important. I th it kind of ties in everything we've just been talking about. We basically hit the nail on the head with mentorship. You know, all of these, maybe these, these major three components are maybe some of the top three is mentorship, right? Whether it's in finances in practice and in, in every aspect of veterinary medicine, however you look at it, it's in value, right? And how do we increase value of what we're doing and um, the value in the connections we make with our clients and encouraging them to do the treatments that we are scientifically backed to say this is the, the, the best quality treatment. And then you talked about spectrum of care. So I think those are three big components of maybe having a successful uh, business in, because at the end of the day, it is a business, right? I like those, I like just, I was just thinking about those three things, you know, as you basically just hit all of those points, how do we increase value for our clients? Start to the top. Uh, I, I would suggest that one of the biggest deficits in the veterinary field at all levels is leadership. It starts with leadership. It starts with a vision. It starts with a leader who says, I'm going to make a practice that delivers a great value to my clients. I'm going to charge a competitive price, and I'm going to give them something that they can't get somewhere else. And then you build a team around that leadership, the vision, the purpose or why, and the values. All of those things together are the foundation. Nobody entered veterinary medicine. I shouldn't say nobody. Mm -hmm. Most people didn't enter veterinary medicine to make a lot of money most of us are doing it to make a difference. And so once you get that purpose in mind from a leadership standpoint, you bring your team together to deliver on that purpose. So I think foundationally, everything we just talked about starts with leadership. And I think that is an area that we don't focus on enough in veterinary school. And we don't focus on enough after veterinary school. So we have a lot of people who are technically adept, but have never run a team, mm -hmm. never hired people, never coached people, never mentored people. Good leaders are good mentors. They're focusing on a value proposition for not just the clients, but also for the staff. And they're looking to make a difference in the community in any of a number, number of different ways that can make access to care not a problem. So I, I go back to the foundational part of, of everything, which is leadership. And I think you probably will find that in your class and other classes at the veterinary schools, many of the entrepreneurs are also class leaders. I mean, you got me thinking now about my class and I'm seeing those shining students 
because you measure people measure success differently, right? You know, and how you view how successful you are as a student, as a veterinarian, as a father, as as anything really boils down to what you put the most value into. And um, yeah, my wheels are turning right now because I'm just like going through all the faces because these people that were I'm we're likely going to be interconnected at some point in our careers, just in networking and and learning new things and moving around and having families and doing stuff. And I just wonder, going back to what you said, is where where are people dropping the ball, you know, with leadership? What, what is one of the components that we see in veterinary medicine where you're like, we're, we're really dropping the ball there. We need, we need to kick up the gear. Well, not everybody wants to be a leader. There are those who want to be a leader and those who develop the skill sets and learn how to be a leader. And there are others who want to be followers, which is good because what's a leader without a follower? Lonely. <laughs> so I, I think that, that leadership comes with a little bit of nature and a little bit of nurture. And if you get yourself into the right practice with the right leader, which is what happened to me, I interestingly became a leader. I was not a class leader in veterinary school. My goal in life was to get into school, to get into veterinary school. After that, graduation was easy. Mm -hmm. Getting into vet school is a lot harder than graduating from veterinary school. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and we talked about this in, in our pre prequel, your net worth is determined by your network. And so building that network after my first job is where I learned how to become a leader. It was watching the people that I worked for in a leadership role, whether it was in organized veterinary medicine or within their team. So how do we change that? We just got to find the leaders. And, and sometimes we need to look for leaders even as we're going through the application process and finding those who had some leadership skills in undergrad. Uh, for example, I really like vet students or pre-vet students who are also college athletes mm -hmm. because I think they learn how to work with the team. And no matter what your role is on that team, you're going to have a leadership role. So I love those. I love people who've worked in retail and in sales because you've got communication skills. Leadership, communication skills, and training are three areas that we could all benefit from. Mm -hmm. And those are focuses that we don't always take in, in the curriculum because there's not a lot of space in the curriculum to do that. Mm -hmm. So I think once you're out, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, learn from other entrepreneurs, learn from other leaders, and whether it's just doing an interview like this or whether it's reading books or whether it's listening to podcasts, whatever the case may be, leaders are learners and leaders are readers. And so I think that's where we can improve it I don't necessarily think it's the responsibility of the veterinary schools to create leaders. Um, I don't think it's their responsibility to create entrepreneurs. I do think it should be the responsibility for them to support those veterinary students who want to be leaders and those who want to be entrepreneurs with resources to help them grow those strengths. No, that's that's wonderful because I I think back and. I really resonate with what you said is the hardest part was getting in and I can attest to that. You know, academically I have been challenged many different ways and getting in was, it felt amazing. Right. And I feel like I've, I've got to experience and been blessed enough to experience amazing opportunities in my life. But 
the feeling of getting in and then now being in. I actually just did a, an episode with Dr. Sydney Pocard and I told her, uh, med school's not that hard, you know? And she looked at me and she's like, what? You know, like just didn't, didn't connect there. And, and that just goes to show you the diversity of, of the thought process and things. And I, and I was basically reiterating, you know, it's, it was getting in that was even more crazy and, and difficult. And now that I'm in, I'm, it's not that I'm on cruise control, but I'm, I'm ever so increasing my speed and changing my lanes and on what I'm doing and, and what I'm learning and how I'm learning and how I'm connecting and, and growing. And I, I'd like to think I'm growing and hopefully I'm growing and, and, um, uh, thriving. I I'm, I'm not in the downward dumps, you know, for example, I, I'm really transparent with my classmates because this facade that people put up in school of, I'm not going to talk about my GPA, my class rank, my grades, my struggles, everything that's happening. And I'm over here like, I just got the lowest grade. I got a 60% on that last exam. Like that's the lowest grade I've gotten so far. And, um, they're like shocked that I say that sometimes, but then some of them open up and they're like, oh yeah, I, I did, I got, you know, X, Y, and Z and how can we do better? And how can we communicate with each other and share resources? And, um, that really pushed me for my following exam to do better because I was, I was hard on myself, but to a reasonable point of encouragement, not, not a, a dwelling. I was never like, oh, this is going to define who I am as a veterinarian in the future. And I was like, okay, that happened. What did you, what went wrong? What was different? What didn't you grasp? All right, cool. Let's move on. Well, it's the difference between a growth mindset and a stagnant mindset. You've got a growth mindset. In fact, we wouldn't be sitting here if you didn't have a growth mindset. <laughs> and there are many people who have essentially stagnant mindset or negative mindsets where woe is me, let's blame everybody for things going wrong instead of taking full accept, accepting of responsibility and then changing the outcomes. Yeah, just it's it sucks. For lack of a better term, it sucks to hear that people struggle with that. You know, and maybe it's a generational shift and I'm very blessed to have been a non-traditional student. I think non-traditional students like I feel more comfortable. I I I have a, we have a 21-year-old classmate. I could not imagine being in this rigorous of a program with next to no life experience. Really? I mean, it's hard to it's hard to fathom, but everybody's different mm -hmm. because those life there are people who by twenty one have had a lifetime of life experiences, mm -hmm. and there are people who at thirty have had no life experiences. I think it's an individual mm -hmm. situation, but I think it's it's the it's where people put their mind that will ultimately determine if they sit there and look to blame the faculty member for the test results mm -hmm. instead of themselves. I would love to blame the organic chemistry professors at Cornell for my grades in organic chemistry, but they weren't the ones partying on Friday night. I was. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you learn retrospectively how to become mature, how to become an adult. And I think in the retrospect, I know what my mistakes were mm -hmm. and I've learned from them and I hope not to live, live them again. Mm -hmm. And I hope to help others not make the same mistakes. It's all really much as a mindset and you can tell the negative Nellies from the positive Peters. Sorry, <laughs> I'm not giving myself credit on that one, but it just came out that way. Yeah. And now I, and, and of course I, I do appreciate that you say it comes down to mindset and, and life experiences. Cause yeah, that does, it does make a big difference. And I just go back to just being grateful and fortunate for the experiences I've put in, whether, been put in, whether they're good or bad, 
I think uh, good experiences are great and bad experiences are lessons. Right. And, and that's a good thing, you know? Yeah, and we call it feedback. Well, guess what? Everything in our body is a feedback mechanism, and we learn that in school, but why don't we want to get feedback as a person to help us grow? Because feedback is what helps you grow. It, it helps your body progress. And so test results are feedback. Sometimes you don't like it, mm-hmm. but you learn from it. That's what we have to do with feedback is learn from it. That's how we grow. That's how we get better. And yeah, a D in immunology in veterinary school scared the crap out of 14 of us who had the same grade mm-hmm. in, in uh, immunology, but we all graduated. <laughs> yeah. And it's so funny that you say stuff like that because we, I know I've struggled with certain things and if I can help just a little bit, you know, why not? Right. That's why we're here. I think we're here because we need to encourage each other and, and help each other out and call each other, call each other in and and say, hey, look, you know, you're screwing up. What's going on? Well, the veterinary field is a, like one degree of separation. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows everybody. And so if you help other people become successful, you're helping the profession globally become successful. Because one bad apple can also impact the profession as well. So when it comes to being in school, the best thing that you can do is help your classmates be successful because that's for for the good of the profession. Mm-hmm. As a colleague after school, the best thing I can do is help you become successful for the good of the profession. Very few of us are in it for our egos. Most of us are in it for the difference we can make, and I said that earlier, but it's not just the difference that we can make for the pets and the clients, it's the difference that we can make for other people as well. And, and I really want that to be a focus for anyone listening because we sometimes get so lost, lost in our selfish ways that we forget the people that we've stepped on getting to where we are. And um, But they know you. <laughs> they Yeah, exactly. They, they remember who you are, even if you've forgotten about them. Yep. Like you said, there's that little degree of separation. And in this community, you, you really need to be careful of the bridges you burn because those same bridges can be your downfall when you look to a helping hand and it's and it's it's not there to help you it's it's there to rip your fingers off to let you fall yep. sometimes and that's a hard lesson that i've had to you know even learn in in my past just because there's been then people that have done wrong things to me and and my mind uh, is you know you, you only have the ability to control how you react right not how they perceive you so i was always like you know I'm done with you. I'm cutting you off. Like this is, you know, whatever. And I think those bridges are really important to keep because it's, they're, they're life lessons for you too. And I've, and I've had to learn the hard way and that's the only way I learn really, you know, and hopefully, hopefully I can get to a point where I'm not learning the hard way on, on specific things that really matter. And, and maybe that will come with maturity, but we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Well, talk to me in 40 years. (laughs) So what do you, what do you say? So we talked about the first year, um, Dr. Weinstein coming out, you were done with the job in three months. What's the five to 10 year Dr. Weinstein in that mindset? Well, I opened my own hospital three years out of school. So my mindset at that point in time is I had my entrepreneurial seizure Mm -hmm. and opened a hospital three years out of school and then realized how little I knew because you think you get little business knowledge now. We got even less then Mm -hmm. because we didn't know much back then. Yeah. So- 
I um, made a lot of mistakes, did a lot of good things, took good care of clients and patients and not always so good things with my staff, went back and got a business degree at night while I was running my hospital and learned about leadership and I learned about stakeholders and I learned about team building and I learned about all of the different things that are necessary because any industry, but more specifically veterinary medicine is a team sport and it requires you to surround yourself with like-minded people who can help you get the outcomes that you're looking for. So I'm a big advocate of leadership and team building and staff retention and taking good care of people, whether they're doctors or associates or kennel people. And um, I, I think the team is what ultimately delivers the client experience and the patient experience. And so that's what I learned in my hospital before I eventually sold it to a corporation mm-hmm. many years ago. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you are, you are as strong as your weakest player, right? That, you know, that cliche saying is, you're, you know, mm-hmm. it, it makes the most sense because I know working in teams and clinics, you see the camaraderie, um, you, you see, and of course, this is all dependent on how the team flows. I've been able to experience very differing situations that made me appreciate a really good team. And uh, for example, like working with a relief veterinarian, you know, you, you see the dynamics shift almost. And if you're not able to adapt very well, especially in relief work, it's a, it's a nightmare and it may not be a nightmare for you because maybe you don't care, but it may be a nightmare for the team that you're subbing in on and you may encourage them to not want to stay in the profession anymore or change jobs or do things even with just one relief work. And I, I, I worked in one and I, we had to have a talk with the team after and it was just like, this is veterinary medicine. This is, there is some bad apples out there and, and it's hard because you have, you know, high school kids that are volunteering and maybe that day was their one perception of veterinary medicine it was just an awful experience. And that just took away from the gift that we have to give back to animals and people. And I find that disheartening sometimes. And I, and I want to always call those people out and, 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 or call them in per se, not really call them out because it needs to be, it needs to be changed. So how do we change those, those individuals who are so stuck in the mindsets of, the world revolves around me and I mean you you've probably met some interesting people in veterinary medicine what do you do but well I mean I'm the trite answer is what goes around comes around mm-hmm. the more specific answer is you set up you set the bar for the future yourself and you make sure that the people that you work with that you surround yourself with have the mindset and the vision that you're looking for and that those people who are negatives, who death eaters, you know, mm-hmm. suck the life out of you, they're not part of your team. Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's it's uh, something like, your life is um, a measure of the five people you sa- surround yourself with. Mm-hmm. Well, in a pr- clinical practice, you may surround yourself with 15 or 20. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a couple of oddballs, but you ultimately make the choice as to who you want to surround yourself with. I mean... In high school, many people probably told you as well as they told me that, why don't you become a medical doctor? Mm-hmm. And I didn't listen to them. Mm-hmm. Well, if you've got clinicians, technicians, client service people who are sucking the life out of the practice, 
they're probably not a good fit and you have to identify that and set the vision and direction of what you want, the values that you want within your practice by choosing the right people who believe in those values and deliver upon them. If you get a relief doctor who is taking away from that value proposition, I would suggest that you don't need that relief doctor back. And eventually, all of a sudden, somebody calls and says, hey, what do you think of this person? You know, and, and it, it, the messaging gets there. The other thing is, if you really want to be helpful, you meet with that individual and you let them know where the issues are so they can hopefully grow. And remember, as we talked about earlier, it's how you, what you do with the feedback that ultimately determines the outcome. Mm-hmm. And, and if they go with the feedback and get better, you've just changed a life. If they don't, you've tried. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, you could give the best advice and if it falls on deaf ears, it's, it's, it's useless, but at least you attempted your best and absolutely, and you cared. Getting those skills developed to, to do that with people really makes a difference. Well, that's called leadership. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just hope, of course, you know, my, my mind goes to what's my first day in practice? What's the first contract I'm going to sign? Will they have the mentorship, the proper leadership? Because on certain things, I feel like I can, I can lead, but I also want to co-lead and, and follow in certain realms and certain avenues that I'm not strong in really try to just make a well-rounded doctor at the end of the day like you said we're we're here to provide a service you know we're we're here to help and give back and encourage and support and learn and grow so i always i always think about that in the back of my mind if of what's going to be my first true experience and how can i grow from that experience because you get everyone that like you said you your first job you were done in three months i mean that is a commonality amongst so many veterinarians the false promises, the stress, the lack of leadership, the lack of, you know, resources. So and, so get involved with organized veterinary medicine. Get involved with education. I mean, I've touched all of them. Mm-hmm. Get involved in setting the direction for the future. Spend your life looking through the windshield and not the rearview mirror and help the profession become all it can be. Mm-hmm. And that's my message to everybody. I've been involved with organized veterinary medicine. I've worked in industry. I am now teaching on the faculty at Western University. You get me next year. Mm-hmm. I'll, you'll be lucky if you pass. <laughs> um, and uh, But don't be a victim. Be a victor. Help set the direction that you would like to see. That's my general message to everybody right now. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to make the profession better for everybody in the next generation for a multitude of reasons, most specifically since Brooke graduated from veterinary school last June mm-hmm. and she's in practice. And I want her to have the fun that I think has kind of been lost uh, in the recent past about within veterinary medicine. We got to bring fun back to vet med. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree and I'm a proponent for that. So um, also for those listening uh, who don't know, Brooke is your daughter just graduated veterinary school, is now in Australia? That's correct. Okay. Is now in Australia, um, Australia, um, working on the wallabies? Yeah. Working on a little bit of everything, but uh, right now surviving a, a cyclone that just hit, and so the water levels oh. are pretty high. I guess a cyclone is a southern hemisphere hurricane. Wow. That's ter- that sounds scarier than a hurricane. Yeah, it does. <laughs> a cyclone. Gosh. Well, congratulations. That's That's huge. I mean, for you, you must feel this 
immense, just proud, overwhelming feeling knowing that you're going to live on a legacy in veterinary medicine as well, you know? Yeah, it is kind of humbling in, in many ways. It's not something I ever thought about, but, you know, to have a, a next generation, I guess it it supports my efforts to be a, a advocate for the profession because so many of our colleagues are not advocates in terms of suggesting young people become veterinarians, but I guess I'm a little bit of walk in the walk and talk in the talk because I contributed a next generation veterinarian. Why do you why do you think people are, are you know practitioners or anyone that's inclined to not encourage family members or friends or anyone to join veterinary medicine? Uh, well, I'll give you all the um, the buzzwords: mm-hmm. uh, burnout, work life balance, little return on investment. It's not all that I thought it was going to be, et cetera, et cetera. There's mm-hmm. There's a lot of non-specific, but is that the wrong mindset? Mm-hmm. Maybe the right mindset are the ones who've taken the um, lemon and made lemonade, and I think we have a half of each. Well, how do we get more lemonade and a little bit less lemon? And that I don't have an answer for, mm-hmm. but I think that's the job of the veterinary schools is to identify the good lemons. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean- you, some look great on paper, some are great in interviews, and they get there, and it's not all cracked up to what it was, right. you know, as was about. But I think if you have the right people picking, you can get pretty good outcomes. So I think I, I would I would say it's the wrong mindset mm-hmm. for for people to discourage uh, such a such a beautiful industry. I just think it's in its rebirth phase. So if if we can make an impact and take the torch that you know, past generations and, and maybe change that flame or, or do different things. I think this can be a very fruitful industry. Um, well, I challenge you mm-hmm. and your classmates in all of the veterinary schools in the country and, and the new ones that will be coming out to not look backwards and to not listen to what I did 30 years ago, mm-hmm. but to decide what you want your profession to look like in the future and make the changes that are necessary or lead the changes that are necessary to give you what you see in your future. And it's probably going to start at a grassroots level. It may start in a coffee shop in Seattle or Pomona or Orange County, Mm -hmm. but you guys can set the direction. Don't follow the lead of the past. Set the direction for the future and how you want it to be. And it if you can completely change things and reinvent the profession, all the power to you. If you can make it better, all the power to you. But don't complain that it's not working unless you make an effort to make it better. I love that. That's a huge perspective that hopefully we can all grasp and and take lead, really. Mm-hmm. I think I think everyone has the ability to lead. It's it's finding that avenue and leading yep. that makes it the most successful. So a couple last questions here. Um what makes veterinary medicine so special? I think it's all of the different things that you touch. Healthcare, learning science, communication skills, leadership, working with pet owners in a special relationship they have with their pets. I think it's helping healing a an animal that can't explain. It's it's the science of trying to figure out what's wrong when you don't have a patient who can tell you where it hurts or how they feel, 
And um, I think it's the, the, the challenge of communicating the importance of veterinary medicine to the world, because I think we as a profession haven't done a really good job of being cheerleaders for ourselves. So I think all of those kind of make it special. I, th- I think in many cases, we're the poor stepchild of human health care, <laughs> and I'd like to fix that. One last question here. If you could be any animal, what animal would you be and why? I'd be a wombat because they poop squares. <laughs> I love that answer. We'll go with that. <laughs> Probably not the one you were expecting, but there you go. It's better than getting a cat four times in a row. So, But hey, I respect that answer. There you go. Uh, also, if you didn't know, uh, Dr. Weinstein here and um, Dr. Nelson have a wonderful podcast. If you'd like to plug it right now, I'd like to give you an opportunity. Sure. Uh, Dr. Nelson, um, former dean at Western University, and I do a podcast. We're in our fourth year. I'll be st- I think we're starting our fourth year called Peter and Phil's Courageous Conversations. You can find it on all the podcast platforms, such as Spotify and Apple and Google. And, um, or you can go to www.peterandphil.com. And we talk about social issues, and we talk about the veterinary profession. We have a lot of guests on as well. And um, really, there's some unfiltered conversations that uh, probably people wouldn't expect to hear from us that are there. So come on, listen on. And when you get done listening to my podcast with Garth, you can go to peterandphil.com. I love it. Is that a, a place they can get a hold of you if they need to? They can get a hold of me through that platform. They can find me on LinkedIn. They can find me on Instagram, on most of the socials. I'm not a big social person mm-hmm. from that standpoint. But um, yeah, just listen to the podcast. You'll find me. I love it. Well, thank you, Dr. Weinstein, for your time, your encouragement, your values, And all that you've done for veterinary medicine is extremely crucial and important that we hopefully find great leaders or create them. So thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you, future Dr. Garth. (laughs) I look forward to seeing you sitting in my seat sometime and somebody interviewing you as well in the way you will set the tone for the future. And, And my message to everybody who listens is be the future that you want, create the future that you want, and then live the future that you want. There we have it. Another amazing episode on Veterinary Vibes, the podcast where we vibe so you can thrive. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave a review, share it, follow us on Instagram and TikTok, and give us an email at veterinaryvibespodcast at gmail.com. I challenge each and every one of you to be the change in vet med you want to see. And as always, take care.